Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I'm the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, four investors based in emerging markets discuss the importance of the global south in addressing climate change and the opportunities for climate tech in their respective regions. Marie from Wavemaker emphasizes the need for startups to drive adoption and change behavior, while James from Africa Climate Ventures highlights Africa's potential for leapfrogging to non-emitting technologies and carbon removal. Anjali from Avana Capital discusses India's young population and high rate of technology adoption as key factors in driving climate tech solutions. Last, Matthias from GridX focuses on the need to change means of production and the potential for breakthrough solutions in agriculture and health. This conversation is moderated by Ben Joff, partner at SOSV. All right, thanks. Uh, so today we, our panel is going to be about the Global South. Uh, it's a very important geography for, of course, uh, climate goals uh, with over 80% of the world's population and uh, uh, fast uh, development across many geographies. So today for this panel, we have four speakers from different regions. We have Mary Chong, founding partner of Wavemaker. Uh, it's a company builder based in Southeast Asia. Uh, James Mwangi, founder and CEO of Africa Cam Climate Ventures, a pan-African climate investor and company builder. Anjali Bansal, founding partner of Havana Capital, based in India. And Matthias Peer, founder and CEO of GridX, targeting Latin America with all kinds of biotech companies, uh, and particularly in climate. So welcome, everybody. Thanks. Uh, it's great to have you. So I'll, I'll start right away uh, with uh, some questions for you about why the Global South matters for decarbonization. Maybe, Mary, if you want to get started with that? Uh, well, first of all, I think, um, you know, uh, climate change is a global problem. So all regions matter. Um, you know, I think uh, there is a perception uh, that, you know, the solutions come from more developed markets and then slowly make their way into developing markets. Um, and, I, and I think that's just a, a huge missed opportunity. Uh, so, you know, there are uh, different market structures, there are um, uh, unique problems, unique opportunities, unique uh, challenges that are faced by customers and businesses in, uh, in the global south and in developing markets across the world. Um, and I think that creates an opportunity to address some of those inefficiencies in the market uh, through the adoption of green technology that goes beyond requiring uh, these these customers to pay a green premium or to invest in sustainability. So uh, yeah, so I think that's that's really what it is, and that's that's why I think um, you know climate change is a is a, obviously a tremendous threat. I don't think any of us need to be reminded of that, but uh, also an incredible opportunity um, uh, that represents you know potentially the next kind of wave of value creation. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, we want uh, developing markets to be a big part of. Okay, Mo moving on to James. So James, you're a pan-African investor. Africa is known to be a um, um, host of uh, incredible resources, um, um, but relatively few uh, kind of novel technologies. How do you see um, the deployment of climate technologies in Africa? What, what, where do you see the opportunities? Like, is there a potential for like gigaton scale solutions? 
I, I think uh, tremendously so, um, because I think that there's a tendency for people to be caught up in the conventional wisdom about Africa and climate, which is correct, which is Africa, African countries have the lowest per capita emissions of almost any place in the world. Uh, so I've done the least to create the problem and are facing some of the worst impacts of climate change. That puts a lot of the discussion about Africa in the, in the, in, in the framing of how do we help these poor climate victims? But it obscures another reality, which is Africa is richly endowed with a combination of a range of natural resources, everything from uh, a lot of the world's uh, virgin natural uh, forests, geological assets, just land at scale. Um, the landmass of Africa, people are often surprised by just sheerly how large it is. Um, massive quantities of untapped renewable energy, something like 60% of the world's untapped renewable energy potential and the world's youngest and fastest growing workforce. If you have any technology or use case that could use labor, natural resources, or energy, chances are, if you're trying to do it at scale, one of the best places to scale is in Africa. And there are three pathways that we are very excited about at, at Africa Climate Ventures. The first one is the reality that as the, as the place with the largest population by the middle of the century, the, the biggest returns to leapfrogging to non-emitting technologies for on-continent consumption is in Africa. The easiest coal plant to shut down is the one you haven't built yet. The easiest construction sector to set up in a green way is the one where you don't have to, to displace traditional high-emitting cement and steel uh, and so on. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if we buy that the world is increasingly going to be looking at climate competitiveness, Africa has structural advantages in terms of its ability to produce at low emissions, both because it has a lower installed base of high emitting infrastructure. And secondly, it's particularly well positioned for certain technologies. So if you're thinking about everything from green hydrogen, green ammonia and so on, there's a lot of there's a lot to think about in terms of Africa's positioning to immediately adopt these without having a red ocean of competing alternatives. And finally, once you really zero in on the scale of carbon removal we're going to have to do across the planet, whether you're thinking about nat nature-based solutions or you're thinking about engineered uh, opportunities or things in between, like biochar, like enhanced weathering, in case after case, what you find is multiple countries in Africa have some of the best conditions for deploying at scale of anywhere in the world. It's just a question of bringing them to the fore, which is what we do. Oh. Excellent. And um, actually, uh, uh, since... Uh... Uh, James mentioned that Africa will have the, the world's largest population as a continent uh, by the middle of the century. Uh, if we look at the Indian subcontinent, I'm turning to you, uh, Anjali, that uh, it currently has the, the world's largest population of any single country. So what, what, how, what do you see in India? What, what is happening in terms of climate tech and technology deployment? Well, Ben, India, of course, has the world's youngest and largest young population today. So it's both the most populous country, it's also the youngest country. It's also remarkably digitally adopted. So we have about 700 million smartphone users and the numbers in India are just large on anything. And so consequently, when we think about solving problems and climate of course is a global problem, it needs to be solved through a globally collaborative effort. Uh, it, India is integral to any global climate solution and climatic systems, as we all know, are actually uh, globally integrated. And consequently, when we combine this young population with a very high rate of technology adoption, plus we are fairly unique in India 
in building public infrastructure on the digital side. And uh, so things like, and some of you who are familiar with the country would be, would know of our unified payment system, our large scale. I mean, we've leapfrogged twice already. We've leapfrogged from fixed line to mobile telephony, lowest cost data network in the world. Um, also, uh, absolutely real-time settled payment system. So given all of this, we have leapfrogged. We believe that there are leapfrogs that will happen in climate as well. And climate is not a monolithic sector. Underlying climate, there are, it's a theme. Underlying climate, there are a lot of different moving pieces. There are both bits and atoms. So you have to think about the, uh, the soft tech, if you will, and the hard tech slash deep tech. Where we are seeing opportunities here is if we look at, and as Avana Climate and Sustainability Fund, we are the first climate focused fund in India. And we look at early stage companies where there are core technology and innovation solving for either mitigation, adaptation, or resilience. So apropos your previous question on the global north, global south, I think in the global south, while of course carbon is an important problem to solve globally, Industrial decarbonization is probably the biggest transition the world will go through. So we are actually going through a very, very large economic, social, political transition ever since the Industrial Revolution. The scale of that will be acutely felt in the Global South. And it is beyond decarbonization. It is the here and now of adaptation, of transitioning our economies. And our economy is growing very at a very robust rate. And we need it to grow at 6 to 9% GDP over the next 25 years. So the transition from a high carbon growth pathway to a low carbon growth pathway and building resilience in some very vulnerable populations that are at risk on from food security interruptions in you know, weather related interruptions in food supply chains and so on. So I think the opportunity set is massive. The combination of a young technology enabled population, a, a spurt of entrepreneurship. India is also the third largest startup ecosystem in the world today. Uh, very supportive enabling policy regime and we do know that in sectors underlying climate and we invest in these three sectors energy transition and resources so water waste circularity carbon markets etc so there's energy uh, agriculture so climate resilient agriculture and food systems and supply chain market linkages right so if you think about energy security food security and supply chains policy is a very significant enabler putting that together so technology is ready policy is supportive and our markets are ready. So that is really the trifecta that is powering a lot of the climate innovation coming out of India. And it's not just solving for India, but we are actually investing in companies that are creating unique frugal tech solutions that are relevant for India, but also for the world. And we can talk more later. Excellent. Uh, actually, moving on to Matthias uh, uh, from uh, GridX. So you're based in Latin America. And when you, when you hear what uh, Anjali talked about in India with the, you know, supportive governance, crazy entrepreneurial ecosystem, great markets, capital um, being uh, more and more accessible. Uh, how do you, uh, what's the situation in Latin America? Because your model is very different. Like you, you bring together scientists and entrepreneurs to create companies. People don't come to you with an existing project necessarily. And you're not necessarily targeting as an entry market Latin America either, right? So tell us more about uh, your model and uh, why, why you do it this way. Yeah, we do it this way because a matter of necessity, we started thinking how to invest in science-based startups or biotech startups in the region, and there were no startups to invest in. You know? So we have a huge, uh, very high-profile pool of talent in the region, uh, but 
nothing from that uh, pool of talent is uh, coming out as a company or as an opportunity for creating real impact. No, so I think that is something that we can see in all the in in, in all these 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 countries, these emerging countries, that the spread between the talent that we have and the impact in terms of companies of real uh, value that this talent is creating in their own countries is an opportunity. We say that it's a, like an arbitrage opportunity, you know, because uh, there is a lot of talent, but no companies coming out from, from that talent. So we approach, approach this, this model because we saw that there was a lot of scientific talent in the region. We have uh, today 200,000 researchers in life sciences in the region and almost no companies coming out from there. So uh, from there, we started this process to connect these scientists with entrepreneurs and together they are creating these, these companies with our program. And after that, we invest in, in, in them and help them to go abroad to uh, raise more funds because our companies are like focusing on R&D. So they are going to need more more funding and that kind of funding is not in the region so they have to go uh, abroad but i think uh, one opportunity that we see uh, that is huge uh, in latin america uh, and anything in, in the rest of the countries as well could happen is this spread between the talent that we have and the real solutions that uh, we can uh, deploy and and, and 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 make from from the region and also thinking about climate uh, is a huge opportunity because in general, this talent knows about the constraints and the lack of resources. No? So we need to think in that way to think uh, to bring new solutions for climate because we need to think decentralized, we need to think resourceful, and we need to think uh, in a very lean way. And we are that is uh, like something that we face every day in this in in this country. So so I think that approach to solutions is a very big opportunity for all the world as well. Okay, that's uh, very different actually from a, a Mary and a wave makers model because I mean uh, you uh, at GridX you you actually like taking science risk. Uh, but then you you want to go to markets that are maybe richer than your local markets to deploy solutions. Whereas in the case of Mary, uh, you guys are not big fans of science risk, but uh, you don't mind engineering risk. And the the type of of um, uh, profiles uh, you're looking for to head those projects is also quite different. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, first of all, we're I mean, huge fans of science, so uh, we're very science risk. <laughs> the work Matthias and others are doing. Um, yeah, maybe just a quick introduction about WaveMaker Impacts. Um, we are um, we, we launched about two years ago with a mission of building a portfolio of companies that can abate 10% of the global carbon budget. And we're starting in Southeast Asia, but uh, you know, with our second fund and beyond, would, would look to expand into other into other hubs. Um, the, what we look to do is um, we look to build what we call 100 by 100 companies. So companies with the ability to abate 100 megatons of carbon dioxide emissions equivalent um, and be $100 million businesses at scale. Um, so I guess, you know, shorthand for, for climate unicorns, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we started this because we did a sort of back of the envelope calculation that, um, 
you know, you can we can abate 50 percent of global emissions today by just accelerating the technology that, that we have. Um, so we like to ask questions like, you know, why is there not solar on every rooftop in Southeast Asia? Or um, we have all of the technology that we need to decarbonize rice cultivation by 80 percent. Why is it not being adopted? Um, and and those are those are you know questions which you know we, we feel that venture is uniquely able to solve right in theory um, uh, startups know how to drive adoption startups know how to change behavior they know how to scale um, you know uh, uh, one of the our panelists also mentioned that you know uh, uh, carbon is bits and it's atoms right so it's it's decentralized it's distributed it's embedded. Um, so, so any solution that is able to go after 100 uh, megatons of emissions at scale, you know, has to be scalable um, and, and, and has to grow quickly. Um, so what we do have in, you know, Southeast Asia, we don't have a lot of, it's a very nascent climate tech uh, community at the moment. So I would say it would be difficult to do a pure play VC fund um, just targeting Southeast Asia because there just simply isn't the deal flow. But what we do have is we have, uh, you know, an incredible pool of talented entrepreneurs, um, you know, many of them who've built large companies, exited those companies and are hungry to build their second company. Most of them come from a pure SaaS background or, you know, in some cases of our founders, sort of physical businesses um, that, they, that they've grown. Um, and they would love to do something that impacts the world, uh, but they just don't know what, right? And I, and I don't think it's it's necessarily rocket science to figure out some of the plays that we do, but um, it, it you know it would take a founder on their own maybe you know two or three years, lots of trial and error. And I suppose our value proposition to to founders with that sort of profile is come and work with us. Uh, and in six months, um, we'll find an opportunity that you're passionate about, a problem that you love solving in the climate space that has this hundred by hundred potential. Okay, I see, James. Uh, you, you seem that that uh, idea seems to resonate with you. Like, uh, what what's uh, is it similar to the approach you're taking for for Africa? So it it does resonate. Um, I I think for us, what we're look there's a lot of low hanging fruit. First of all, so there are huge opportunities to reduce or avoid emissions altogether in Africa through deployments of particular proven technologies. Uh, and in those instances, what we are doing is we're engaged in business model innovation and market entry innovation. Um, so oftentimes what we find is that you've got a whole range of actors who agree that a market is attractive, but do not have the expertise to enter or deploy into an African market. And what we may do is pair a local entrepreneur with a proven technology and help them um, scale up and provide that, that kind of jurisdictional bridging. The other thing that we do is we are spending a lot of time on the cutting edge of, of climate tech, trying to understand what are the binding uh, constraints and enabling and critical enablers of different technologies as they go through first of a kind or even before first of a kind and see which ones may actually have a boost, meaningfully boost their chances of success via deployment in Africa. So, for example, we're looking at a whole range of folks who are looking at uh, mineralization, subterranean mineralization of dissolved CO2, where Africa and particularly the East African Rift's particular geology make it a really attractive place to operate, but they will need help. So us as a venture builder alongside a team that developed a technology elsewhere in the world actually makes for a very attractive combination. 
And then finally, what we hope to do in that context is begin to inspire and, you know, by virtue of being a relatively young continent, you have a whole lot of new entrants into the workforce, highlighting the pathway around either making marginal improvements to existing climate tech or going straight to the coal face of, um, you know, wrong, wrong word, but going to early stage innovation um, in academia is something that we hope to trigger in the fullness of time. But early, early signs are good. Our very first market entry play is projected to deliver something like uh, 5 to 10 million tons per annum of avoided emissions in the clean cooking space in just one country. So the idea is where do we find those types of relatively low-hanging food across multiple countries and across multiple market contexts. Okay. And uh, Anjali, I'm actually curious about what's the situation in India regarding deployment of new technologies, because in some cases, governments, uh, local governments, national governments are kind of reluctant or slow, and there's a lot of red tape to do anything, even for solutions that are beneficial to the planet on reducing carbon emissions. What, what, what's the situation in India? Do you see any, any difficulty? there or do you see on the contrary support so there is a saying about india everything you say about india that is true the opposite is equally true so uh, yes ben it is difficult but no ben it is also not so difficult um, so let me start with the positives i think on the positive side marie mentioned this earlier as well we are actually seeing some very very strong entrepreneurial talent that is saying, hey, I don't necessarily want to build the next uh, fintech, e-commerce, crypto company. I actually want to really solve a big problem, right? So that solving a big problem, when we put it at the center of, and that's really what entrepreneurship is all about. When the unicorns came later, first what came was why did people do startups? Because they wanted to solve an intractable problem. And we have founders like that. Uh, we have a company called Iki Foods, which is actually growing tomatoes and everyday vegetables, tomato, cucumber, and so on, in 50 degrees Celsius temperature in Rajasthan, 80% less water usage, marginal electricity, no greenhouse, no cocoa peat, precision. So they've got a patented material science-based growing chamber where they suspend the roots, the whole, so you don't need a greenhouse. It's not energy intensive. And these guys could have done anything very, very smart mechanical engineers. Um, they decided to solve the problem of high quality, fresh produce, nutrition availability to average Indians. And so consequently, they're able to grow tomatoes at 10, at 10 cents a kilogram cost base and sell it at market prices. So this is not leafy greens. This is not, you know, uh, luxury vegetables, if you will. So we are on the one hand, we are seeing people like that who want to solve very large problems. On the other hand, all the challenges of early technology adoption. And I mean, India now we are seeing sort of two decades of entrepreneurship, but mostly on the digital side. So mostly on the bits and bytes, less on the atoms, molecules. So, and, and so much of climate solutioning is really about physics and chemistry and engineering. So when you bring all of that together, you do have a very different cycle of growth. And that understanding I think is still relatively nascent. Um, it is growing and hopefully it will grow fast that we will not see the same kind of adoption curves for, um, call it hard tech, if you will, and hardware related businesses. Uh, as Avana, while we track emerging technologies, so we take us, I've been fascinated to hear about the different approaches and I will check in with all my fellow panelists later on to see what we can share. Uh, the approach we have taken is we are not equipped to do lab stage science. 
lab state science is a problem that needs to be solved differently. We are supporting it, but in a different way, not through the, it's not venture investable necessarily today. So we take technologies that are coming out of labs or business process innovation, model innovation that is coming out of entrepreneurs. And at the stage of commercialization, our secret source and our superpower is we know how to help scale. So we help them get to market, accelerate their growth, bring in the right industry linkages, um, accelerate their adoption, because a lot of these technologies need to get adopted in large companies and large corporate supply chains. We are probably the best positioned fund, forget climate, otherwise even, even in general, we see in India through our corporate and industry linkages because of the kind of backgrounds all of us on the team have. So that's how we work with take technologies that are at the cusp of commercialization, help them get to market, and then create impact at scale and consequently produce returns. So we take a very thesis-led approach. I heard someone say that you define what are the big problems. So we have, you know, in our chosen sectors, we say, okay, what are the big problems? Lots of big problems, and then we track those spaces. So we do a lot of, while we get inbound, we see about 200 deals every quarter. And there's a, if you will, a virtuous flywheel. Founders refer other founders to us. But we also do a lot of thesis building and outbound marketing, market mapping. And sometimes even incepting and seeding ideas with smart founders. So we met a team that was saying, hey, we will do consumer level carbon footprinting. And he said, you know, no one's going to pay for this, right? So why don't you shift to enterprise? And they did. So we do a bunch of this inception as well. And sometimes they come back to us, sometimes they don't. Often they do. And uh, that's really, I think, the contribution we make. Um, James, you mentioned science. Um, I think anything that you can solve in India for 1.4 billion people at a very, very uh, price sensitive cost base can be solved for anybody. So if you can do hydrogen at $1 here, that's terrific. Huge amounts, huge tonnage of inedible biomass. What can we do with that to either turn it into fuel or to apply synthetic bio uh, and create sort of food material or packaging material out of it? And I can keep going. I mean, today we are at a place where a new unit of solar energy actually costs less than a new unit of thermal. I, mean, I sit on the board of India's, one of India's largest power companies, Tata Power, and I've seen this journey over the last 15 years. So when you see the markets in flex, that's when magic happens. But we have to keep seeding the early stage so that it is ready for that market inflection. And sometimes we drive that market inflection. But it is not straightforward. I think there's a lot of learning that we still have to do as a venture community and not expect this to have the same kind of uh, SaaS type hockey stick growth curves. I think you have to be careful about that. Yeah. Yeah. Th uh, thanks. Thanks, Anjali. That's uh, very promising. And uh, actually, I'm turning now to, to Matthias because so most of um, what has been described so far are solutions that avoid having a green premium and ideally target a green discount so that the, the cleaner solution is economically better. Uh, but in your case, you don't shy away from uh, having a, a potentially huge green premium to get started with a, more like a breakthrough type of solutions. Are there particular categories you're looking at within, um, within the, the vast uh, landscape of bio that you cover? Yes, we, we, we think that we, we have to expand the visions about climate not, and not talk only about uh, uh, carbon no? removal or, or capturing. And we, we have to think about uh, planetary limits uh, because there are a lot of opportunities uh, there. And when you start thinking about climate in, in that way, as always, uh, Sean O'Sullivan mentioned, and we, we, we also 
think the same. We have to think in terms of uh, change the means of production. No? So if you think uh, that you have to change the means of production, there are a lot of solutions that you have to, to do in agriculture. Uh, we have to uh, transform all the the chemical approach in agriculture. We have to understand like ecological processes there. Uh, we have to transform the food industry uh, ingredients and proteins uh, as well. We have to decentralize a lot of stuff in, in, in health that also impact in, in, in climate, of course. So I think that we have to 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 think uh, in in that way more in 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 changing the main the means of production and transforming the the economy uh, in that way rather than just focusing on on, on one one industry and the, from there to see what available knowledge we have that could be transformed into into solution that is something that is not so common because in general, the, the, the design process is to look into the problems and to see the solutions. And I think we have an opportunity looking for capabilities and adapting that capabilities to really approach problems that we are seeing. No? It's a different way of seeing design. And I think that what uh, was mentioned earlier is very important because uh, and here in Latin America, I think it's a confusion. When we are approaching these kind of ventures, deep tech ventures, we have to start thinking in a new like model of venture capital in this way, because it's not going to be the same as it was with the digital in the last 20 years. It's different. Uh, the, 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 the times are different. The, 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 the risk aversion is, is different. What you have to focus in is different. So we have to start thinking uh, in different models and different expectations about 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 returns, about times of, of that kind of returns. And and maybe we have to start thinking more in uh, 10 companies of 100 million dollars rather than of the unicorn uh, always center attention of the companies. And that's going to be OK because you're going to bring like huge solutions and and, and very impactful solutions for 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 the region and also uh, companies that can bring uh, good returns for investors. But I think there is an opportunity there to be creative and to start thinking how to rethink these venture models, not only for us but also for LPs that wants to see like the same pathways that they, they saw in the digital revolution, that it's okay and, and we need a lot of more of that. But I think this is a, a new game that we have to figure out how to sell it better. Yeah, no, you make a great point uh, regarding the, the necessity to invent new models and to avoid like the old pattern recognition because the models you see uh, emerging now in your geographies in the global south and climate tech, uh, which is, you know, long, uh, complex problem to solve uh, is, is very different from uh, what has been done so far. And uh, I'm sure uh, Mary uh, resonated uh, with what you said about having uh, 10 or 100 companies worth 100 million uh, at scale. Uh, so um, we're about out of time. So I'm going to ask you to, to just uh, wrap up with uh, maybe one message or wish that you have regarding climate tech in your region. And uh, I will start uh, with, with uh, Mary. Yeah, what an interesting panel. You know, I think uh, uh, climate tech 
uh, is uh, you know the one of the greatest economic opportunities of our time. Uh, and um, uh, you don't need to be a scientist or a researcher or a government policy person to to make a big impact on this. Um, there's much, there's so much you can do in business model innovation. Um, and uh, if you're in Southeast Asia, an entrepreneur thinking about what they want to do next, uh, please reach out to us. So we spoke about digitalization and, you know, over the last 30 years, when I started in business 30 years ago, companies didn't have CTOs and today digitalization is embedded across the enterprise and across our lives. Things We have to sustainabilize the world. And uh, that is the next big, huge, big opportunity. It will beat digital. It's no longer, I used to say sustainability is the next digital. Actually, it's more than the next digital. It will fundamentally change how we live, how we work. It is the next big economic opportunity as well. Um, very exciting. And similar to Marie, I would say, if you're a founder who's thinking about doing anything in climate, do come talk to us. Two short things. One, that uh, coming out from Latin America, uh, as is the region, the more, most di biodiverse region in the world, uh, we want to to say that biodiversity, we have to see it as a matter of ecological balance is okay, but also it's an opportunity to, to see it as an asset. Biodiversity is today an asset. With synthetic biology, we can do a lot of stuff understanding nature and evolution. And another thing I want to say is that we need more entrepreneurs coming out from the not coming from the from the science side jumping in this conversation because uh, it's possible uh, even if you don't know nothing about about science you can start a conversation you can go deep in that conversation and you can be very very impactful in that conversation and you need to 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 cross in this complex world to cross boundaries to 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 really have complex solutions for for what we are seeing uh, James, thank you. So, so firstly, just marveling at the level of uh, I think violent agreement among all of us. There's so many common threads, um, you know, across the various narratives, and I look forward to both learning from and connecting with my fellow panelists. Um, I think a point that was made that I just emphasize again: we are at the dawn of one of uh, of the fastest, most far-reaching industrial revolutions in human history. The only debate we are having right now about climate tech and the shift to climate smart solutions is whether it'll take 15 years, which will be bad, 25 years, which will be very bad, or 35 years, which will be very, very bad uh, to get there. But this is going to be a, a transition that impacts every aspect of how we live. And to the point that was made earlier, it means entrepreneurial opportunities across the board. And so for me, where I like to live is let's live in the future. Let's actually ask, what does the world, what does Africa need to look like in 2040 or 2050, not just for it to have survived the climate transition, but for the planet as a whole, because every part of the world is in it together. Once you future cast, then things that look impossible or difficult to imagine. I live in a country that was the first pioneer of broad-based adoption of mobile money within seven years of mobile phones becoming widely used. Those types of leapfrogs are possible and can continue. We just need to recognize the future that we're working towards. And I'm really excited to be part of, uh, of working towards that with others around the world. All right, well, thanks everyone for your amazing insights and back to the SOSB Climate Tech Summit.